You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music and technology. And at Music Tectonics, we cover a wide range of topics about innovation and seismic shifts in the music industry, much with a tech focus, although not only. And we do a lot on the recorded side of the business. And I always want to be doing more on the live side. So we, we, we've done a lot on live streaming on the podcast since this year, since there hasn't been much in the way of in real life concerts happening. But I'm really excited today because we get to dig in a little bit more on the live side and particularly on the ticketing aspect. Today, I've got with me Lawrence Perrier. He is the Chief Revenue Officer at Light. How are you doing, Lawrence? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so fun to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, we've known each other for quite a long time. You've you've been uh, an independent producer and consultant of projects for a couple of decades, and you also have a past at Amazon, Warner Music Group, Live Nation, and even companies that had the word CD in their names. Uh, (laughs) You've been in it for quite a while. (laughs) I have, yeah, 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 Um, I have. I'm an elder statesman. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? (laughs) It it just creeps up on you, man, doesn't it? (laughs) That's right. So um, we'll talk a little bit about your background, but just so uh, we get off on the right foot with our audience here, what is Lite? L-Y-T-E, right? Tell us about the company. Yeah. So um, much prefer to talk about Lite than me. So thank you. Um, <laughs> Lite is what I like to call um, the product development company for live entertainment. And um, behind that pithy one-liner, what it really means is that um, we sort of have this mission of um, making it easier uh, more fair, more equitable for people to attend more of the live events that they're passionate about. Um, that's sort of what we're trying to do for fans, make it easier to access tickets. Um, and for the risk takers on a show, be that the artist or the promoter or the venue, uh, we're trying to make sure that they have full rooms and that they are maximizing not only their revenue opportunities, um, but that they, they are owning and controlling um, more of the outcome um, around the event that they took risk on so that they're capturing customer data, they're capturing revenue, they're providing the fan experience that, um, that they want to deliver to their patrons so that they can build loyalty and build in-venue spend. Um, so we're really speaking to those two constituents, fans and risk takers. Got it. And so uh, my understanding is that light came into being to help counteract the the ticket scalping market. Is that correct? Um, yeah, let me parse that a little bit. Okay. Um, so light was founded by um, our CEO, um, a gentleman named Ant Taylor. And Ant comes from the ad tech world. Um, and uh, he was uh, part of a company called Right Media, uh, which was sold to Yahoo. And Ant spent a lot of time thinking about and working on yield management, dynamic pricing, you know, in the in the advertising, online advertising uh, market space. Mm -hmm. And um, in addition to that, he was a college athlete at Princeton. He played basketball. And those two strands came together where um, after he did his time at Yahoo, um, he was on a bucket list trip to the Olympics in uh, 2012 in London. And. If anybody listening recalls what the what the story was out of London that first week, it was that the uh, the tickets for the Olympics sold out lightning fast, and there weren't really any tickets on the streets. 
but the venues were all uh, half empty to the point where like Costas was mentioning it on air. Like it was a very big part of the, the, the week one story of week one story of those Olympics. Um, wow. Like what's going on? Where did all these tickets go? And so Ant was uh, making his way to the beach volleyball tournament um, and they had built a venue outside of 10 Downing. And it was, as you would imagine, like walking up to the venue, there's people wrapped in the flags of their country, fingers up looking for tickets, nothing on the streets. He gets inside and there's all these pockets of empty seats. And, you know, it brought out sort of that feeling of like, this is the pinnacle of these kids' careers to date. Um, Where is everybody? You know, Um, Mm -hmm. why isn't there more cheering? Why isn't there, why isn't this place filled to the gills? And um, it got him thinking with his yield management uh, sort of Princeton brain and his athlete's heart of like, what's going on here? What's wrong? Where, where, where are all these tickets? Where are all these spectators? And he came home from those Olympics and really spent a few years um, <laughs> with some data scientists and analysts um, learning from the outside of the business what we were starting to learn from the inside which is there were things going on in the secondary market on sales were being attacked. There was automated activity around ticket buying and selling um, that was impacting who was getting tickets, how they were being sold, how they were being used. Um, And that sort of kicked off the product development cycle at light. Gotcha. So, so noticing that experience and then digging in to see what was happening and how that was happening kind of became the origin story. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So who, who loses out the most from these, these scalpers? I mean, is it, is it really on the fan audience side or is it more on the promoter side? It's interesting because um, I, I'll, I'll start by saying, as in any ecosystem, sometimes there's a role for uh, third-party ticket brokers. Mm-hmm. And so light is less about demonizing anybody. And I don't say that to be political. Like there are, there are parts of the live entertainment business that, um, have, I don't want to say come to rely, but have come to rely on the secondary (laughs) market as part of their distribution strategy, you know, especially in sports, um, where there's so much inventory. Um, and you know, you can imagine like a Tuesday night game when, uh, the two teams are out of the running, regardless of the sport, like that's going to be a hard ticket to sell at face value. And so there's all kinds of liquidation strategies that go on and quite frankly, risk mitigation that goes on when the secondary comes in and buys a bunch of tickets. So there's a role in the live event ecosystem where there has been to date. But in terms of who loses, um, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, everybody, um, the fan certainly can lose when um, premium tickets get scooped up or any tickets get scooped up very quickly. And they've lost the opportunity to get a, a ticket at a fair price. Um, the risk taker, you know, the promoter or the venue can lose when they've tied up capital, not only in that show, but in their facility and in all their other parts of the patron experience. And they're not maximizing the revenue from that event. But I also think um, the talent loses because if the venue isn't full, um, what a shitty experience to be the right. one on stage who's trying to play to the rafters um, and you're not getting that full engagement from a crowd. So there's a lot of there's a lot of people in the ecosystem who have a degraded experience, whether they know it or not, um, because of the secondary yeah. market. It's interesting the way that you describe it. It almost sounds like the secondary market evolved because the primary market 
wasn't able to manage dynamic pricing in a way that served all parties at once. Yeah, it could be that that's part of it. I think, you know, when we when we talk about ticket scalpers and we talk about the secondary market, um, the phenomenon's really changed over the last 20 years, right? Like uh, for any of us over a certain age, we can remember standing in line for tickets, sleeping out for tickets, um, mm-hmm. going to a show or an event, and there's sort of, you know, the guy on the corner as you walk up um, looking to sell tickets or even looking to buy your tickets, um, basically street activity. Mm-hmm. Um, localized, regionalized at most, um, guy with an ad in the back of the local, you know, independent weekly kind of thing, um, small business over the last 20 years or so, since the advent of StubHub and other online secondary marketplaces, um, some of the good that's come with that is that activities come off the street and sort of, you know, the, the sort of cliche of sunlight being a disinfectant. Um, making it safer, bringing an e-commerce ethos to some of that. Um, but it's also created tremendous opportunities for the secondary market to exist at scale and for third parties unaffiliated with the risk takers for events to aggregate um, demand information, pricing data, um, capture consumer information. Um, and so did the primary create the secondary through a failure in pricing Maybe, maybe, but I also think that um, it's been a lack of like product innovation as well. It's been a, it's been a, um, and uh, too much of a commitment to old school business models and old school ways of doing things that have also created the opportunity. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. All right. Let's we'll get into a little bit more about where Light is right now, but let's talk about you. What's what's your role at Light? So, um, you know, I have the fancy chief revenue officer title. Um, Pretty fancy. (laughs) And what that means for us is, uh, you know, sales. So uh, a team that goes out and signs um, event promoters, producers, venues, artist tours, um, you know, does the the sales and partnership deals um, with the people who we're going to bring our solutions to. Um, And then there's also a corp dev, biz dev part of it. So some of our larger relationships um, with either, you know, corporate promoters or teams or leagues, things of that nature, more strategic deals. Um, and then there's uh, some other partnership aspects of our company. You know, we have a web of relationships with primary ticketing companies um, that we integrate with from sort of a supply chain point of view. So Light doesn't, um, Light doesn't issue tickets. You know, there's no Light app that you have to download. Or if you're a fan and you buy a ticket through any of the Light product solutions, you get the same ticket as somebody who purchased in the primary on sale. And that happens because of our integrations with um, primary ticketing companies. Um, and so th- those partnerships and those supply chain relationships are within my group as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, chief revenue officer means uh, drive revenue, drive growth, um, keep hitting those year over year targets that keep everybody happy and, um, and, and bring our solutions to a broader market. So that's what I do. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. But can I ask you in that technical sort of workflow, if the fan's not really interacting with light, where does light fit in to the to the actual ticket purchasing moment? Oh, interesting. Interesting. So I definitely did not say it um, articulately if um, it leads you to believe that the fan doesn't integrate with or interact with light. That, that's a that's an amazing question hmm. um, and reveals a lot. Well, about. So, um, sorry, I got it wrong. 
No, no, I think I think I got it wrong. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take you through a, just an example of how it okay, works. So, cool. um, you have a ticket to Coachella and you can no longer go. Um, in the past, your options were, you know, maybe tell your friends on Facebook, turn to your coworker, uh, maybe go to Craigslist or go to StubHub. Now, what you can do is you can go back to Coachella.com and click a link that says "Return My Ticket." When you click that link you're launching light in the background. Hmm. So there's a um, an exchange, a co- an official Coachella ticket exchange powered by light on Coachella.com. And so by clicking that link, um, a few things happen. You launch the light algorithm and um, you have the opportunity to go through a return experience. So you enter in the barcode or whatever the unique identifier is on your ticket um, into a form and that's light. And light talks to the primary ticketing system in the background. So through a series of API integrations, we look up your ticket, make sure it's real, um, verify what was paid for, a bunch of a bunch of sort of supply chain mechanical things go on, and then we make you an offer for your ticket. Um, generally speaking, it's face plus fee. So we want to make you feel like you're returning your ticket, that you're made whole, um, and you accept the offer and you return your ticket. And now light has your ticket. The other thing that's going on on Coachella.com is there's a wait list. So when a price level for Coachella sells out or the whole event sells out, fans who missed out in the primary on sale can get on a wait list and they've got their credit card on file with light. Um, They know the price they're going to pay. So we take the ticket you've returned and we fulfill it to the next person on the wait list. Mm -hmm. The act of fulfilling it to the person on the wait list is light telling you, Hey, Dimitri, you're going to Coachella now. Your ticket's been fulfilled. Um, can't wait to see you at the event. And then a few minutes later, you get a, another email from the primary ticketer, just as though you had bought the ticket during the primary on sale with your ticket. Mm-hmm. So your transaction is with light, but your fulfillment is through the primary ticketing company. Got it. And is that the only kind of role that light plays in this? Or is there are there other types of transactions? Besides the return waiting list for refulfillment, yeah, internally we call that light classic. <laughs> that uh-huh. was our that was sort of the, the core. that's the business that got us here. Yeah, mm-hmm. was was this idea of returnability, and that was really that was really how that was our secondary market solution, right? Like by taking returns, we're keeping supply off of the secondary market. We're giving fans a better option than having to become amateur ticket scalpers. And by having the wait list, we're capturing the demand from the secondary market. Mm-hmm. And both of those things together keep the activity, the fan experience, the data, and the revenue in the official ecosystem of the event. So now you're coming to Coachella.com to buy and sell tickets throughout the whole campaign, not just Friday at 10 a.m. So right. that that was our sort of initial product. But now we've done lots of different things and and offered lots of different sort of platform capabilities. The biggest of which right now that people are embracing is this notion of taking that waitlist technology and putting it out in front of the on sale. So um, you can now be a festival or an an artist tour or a venue and say, um, we're going to have a show. Uh, You know, Dimitri's band is going to play. Would you like to go get on the wait list? And we don't really have to tell you much else. It doesn't matter when Dimitri's band's going to play. It doesn't matter what day of the week. Because the commitment's even, pretty light. 
Yeah, it may not even matter the venue. You just know, I want to see Dimitri's band when they come to Indianapolis, so I'm going to get on the wait list. And if you know that um, you've now put down your credit card to make a reservation, you haven't been charged, but your card's on file, you know that when tickets become available, um, you're going to get fulfilled. But you also know that that reservation is cancelable, the ticket's returnable. Um, we're basically giving you the opportunity to express your interest in Dimitri's band um, and then move on with your life. You don't have to take Friday at 10 a.m. off from work or schedule your calls around it. Or, you know, we're bringing our true e-commerce experience to ticketing. I always tell people just because we have 25 years of tickets being sold online doesn't mean ticketing's been e-commerce. Like the metaphor of a shopping cart never really existed. It was come in, grab as many tickets as you can and get out before the bum rush of scalpers and other fans and everything else. This is meant to slow it down, mm -hmm. create a, a better fan experience, but also allow the event promoter or the event producer to understand the demand profile. Who wants to come to my show? Where do they live? Where are they coming from? How many tickets do they want? Which price level do they care about? Um, I can see the patterns and maybe who's the broker or who's the core fan. Geez, I can look up all this demand against my customer database. Maybe I can reward loyalty. Maybe I could prioritize the highest shopping cart because these people also added the poster or the t-shirt or the parking pass. Um, so it's this attempt to not only quanti uh, quantify the demand, and help me make more actionable uh, or give me more actionable insights, but mm -hmm. help me make better business decisions based on who I know wants to come to my shows. Man, that waiting list concept is so simple and so elegant for solving this problem. It's, it's once you say it, you're like, oh, of course, that's how you should handle that. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's funny when people experience it on the fan side, they want it. You know, like we have people email or come in through the support desk all the time who say, you know, I got tickets to such and such festival or such and such show through light. Um, how come light isn't turned on for this other show I'm interested in? Or mm. why can't I return my ticket to so-and-so? I was able to do it somewhere else. Like it's such an obvious um, consumer e-commerce experience. We're, we're finally making concert tickets like anything else you'd buy. Um, easy to transfer, easy to return, easy to monetize, um, easy to de-risk yourself from your position easy to buy. <laughs> yeah. Um, like a t-shirt, like a, like a, like, like anything else you'd buy online. Let, let me ask you. Um, so the, uh, the waiting list portion of it is, is, uh, is super interesting. I like the part that you said about it kind of slows down the process, gives you a chance to c collect some data and make some business strategic decisions about each fan and each purchase and interaction as a result of that gap that you're putting between the, the, the moment the waiting list starts getting collected versus the on sale moment, are you able to actually stop large secondary market purchases, automated purchases and so forth as a result of that? Yeah. I mean, whenever you slow it down, you have the opportunity to do that. You know, it, it's an arms race, right? In, in, in online ticketing. And unfortunately that arms race has typically come down to like a very specific moment in time, Friday at 10 a.m. It's, it's, you know, it's ticket platform against the world and real fans are coming in, automated traffic's coming in, you know, uh, hundreds of people that are paid to go buy tickets are coming in. 
And there's all this stuff that has to go on in real time, which quite honestly degrades the fan experience. Like things, uh, tickets get carded and then uncarded and you could come in at 10.03 and it's sold out and come in at 10.05 and there's tickets available. Like it's just a clunky experience. Um, or you find out after the fact the, uh, the ticket company does a bunch of scrubbing of the orders and geez, as the promoter, you were sold out on Friday and now it's next Thursday and you get the report and you say, you know what, uh, these 500 orders were, were violating the, um, the ticket limit, uh, provisions, mm. or this was a block of brokers. What do you want to do with these tickets? And it's like, mm. I'm supposed to go back on sale. Like, what do you do? It's just, it's just, it's, it's confounding. So yes, mm. by slowing it down, it, ar- it allows you to run whatever your broker mitigation strategies are, um, before you fulfill. And quite honestly, you may have a scenario where you want to fulfill some of that inventory. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, at least you have the choice. You can decide who to put in what order um, or decide not to have any order. But at least as the person who took the risk on the event, you have the choice. Do, do some people in the secondary market hate what you guys do? I don't know. Um, I, I, I think probably um, you'd have to ask them. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I, just, I, I mean, mean it's... I think what yeah. you're saying is you've kind of shifted you've shifted the power back to the risk taker, which is what's super interesting. And and like you said, they could still choose to go through those secondary market brokers to to fulfill hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of tickets if they want to or need to. Yeah, I think the thing that's that's super interesting and that we 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 hope we're providing value to our clients with is that, um, and this has been so surprising to me as I, as I came into light a few years ago. You know, when an event sells out, it that could be a 500 seat club or it could be a 80,000 seat stadium. When an event sells out, it's very rarely the case that there's only like 10 more people that wanted tickets. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's right. it. We find that our wait lists have thousands of people. Like there is not a demand problem. There's a supply problem. Um, mm. You know, and so there's always people on the wait list the day of the show, and that's the insight that we want to bring or one of the insights that we want to bring to event producers is like in the past, they never really knew how many people were shut out. Um, They got some, they got some sort of um, some secondhand information when they looked at secondary activity. But when you have a wait list of people who've put their credit card down and who have said, if tickets become available, please sell me one. And that list is thousands of people long. You can start to do some really interesting things, whether that's have another night, have the band back in a few months, um, start to think about um, the venues you play next time. Like it just gives you, it just gives you information that you can make better decisions around. Right. So look, I asked you what your role was. I was about to ask you what your background was. And then I just went down the rabbit hole to ask more questions. I always want to understand the business strategy, but let's go back to you. Tell us a little bit more about your background. I kind of gave a laundry list of, of several household name companies and music and music tech that you've worked with and, and a little bit about how those things led you to where you are today. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, it's funny. I try Where to, to start? Where to start? Yeah, I, I try to adhere to the uh, the um, the rule that like each page of your resume is ten years, and so I'm oh, trying wow. to I'm trying to flip back through a few pages <laughs> here. But um, I mean, basically, you know, I got my start in the um, the early mid '90s um, in online commerce, um, even sort of pre web, like um, through the early online services, AOL, CompuServe. Um, oddly enough, I owned a bookstore 
and I had a wow. mail order catalog. And um, that's what originally got me in the direct-to-consumer business and um, in the mail-order business. And just because I was somebody with a technology background, um, I brought my early businesses online. And like a lot of people in those early internet days, I became like the local guy who knew about the internet. And I started to make more money advising and consulting little local businesses than I did in my bookstore. And... Um, what happened was I, I wound up being introduced to the gentleman who was starting CD Universe, which was one of the early online music stores. And um, I went in house there and, you know, helped him build uh, the, the marketing and business development um, for, for CD Universe. And that basically meant um, a miniature version of my current job. It was helping him drive revenue. Um, he was the tech uh, brains behind the, uh, the company and he had fulfillment and operations and all that stuff. Um, and my job was was revenue. And uh, that was really my start to, to what I would call like scaled e-commerce beyond my own sort of mom and pop version mm -hmm. of the world. And that led me um, into the early online music space. So we did a lot of direct business with the early sort of, you can't see the air quotes, but the new mm -hmm. media groups at all the labels, um, doing early online promotions, um, working with all those early tech companies like Liquid Audio and Real Audio, um, the sort of... Um, you know, the rogues gallery of companies that um, it's so fun, actually, sometimes to talk to some of the old timers and say, oh, my God, I forgot about that company or I forgot about that person. Where did they go? Um, but uh, my e-commerce orientation um, got me into the artist direct to consumer business very, very early on. So um, I worked at and ultimately ran a company called Ultrastar, which was um, co-founded by David Bowie. And we basically did all of David's online activity. So we ran BowieNet, his online service, his website, e-commerce, ticketing, and all the things we built for David became a platform that we then sold to other artists. And over the years, that was the Stones and Madonna and the Chili Peppers, just sort of a who's who of um, early, mid-2000s artists. That company um, was acquired by a gentleman named Michael Cole, who... Um, was one of the biggest concert promoters in the world. He sort of invented the global touring business with the Stones and U2 and Madonna, a bunch of other artists. Um, Michael sold Ultrastar and a lot of his other holdings, a merch company, a VIP ticketing company, his promotion company, um, to Live Nation. And he became the chairman of Live Nation. And his family of companies became the group within Live Nation that did all the early 360 deals. So we signed Madonna and Jay-Z and Nickelback and a bunch of other artists um, to those sort of groundbreaking multi-year, multi-cycle um, deals where Live Nation became the company that did everything for those artists, not only their tours, but their merch and their websites and VIP and basically monetized the artist's entire career um, wow. in partnership. And uh, that model wound up being in various forms, um, really a, a model that the major record labels then started to embrace. So if you wanted to sign a deal, say with Warner music, um, you were signing 360 deals. Um, and, uh, that sort of is what I wound up building, uh, within Warner music was they gotcha. were signing all these rights, but they didn't have, um, necessarily all the infrastructure to exploit the rights. So each label in each territory around the world, had its own e-commerce platform, its own merch company. Like they were, they were, they were catching up to uh, to exploit the rights they were aggregating, 
So I came in and built a centralized team within WIA um, at Warner Music, within the distribution company that built the platforms and the best practices and all the capabilities around uh, managing and operate operating all those rights businesses. So we had a merch division, a ticketing division, a VIP division, a fan club, artist websites, uh, CRM, e-commerce, um, and that group still exists today and, and sits in the center and globally manages all those artist campaigns. So um, that's a slice of sort of who I am and what I do. And but my background, or or the, the best way to kind of summarize what I do, is really about using technology to connect artists and fans. That's sort of how I, that right. that's my self-image. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, you're on the right podcast then. It sure sounds like those experiences uh, leading up to and at Live Nation and, and at Warner really uh, gave you a, 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 a 360 view on what, what kind of the, the context of what you're working in now at Light. So yeah. uh, makes makes a ton of sense of, of how you got to where you are. Let's go back to Light. How much traction has Light gotten, let's say, prior to the pandemic of 2020? Because um, we'll talk about what's been going on now. But but uh, where, where is the business in its maturation? Yeah, yeah. So before the pandemic, uh, we had um, last summer had closed um, our Series A financing. Uh, mm-hmm. We'd been very capital efficient before that. We were basically friends and family, uh, some you know, uh, some angel investment, um, but we had really sort of lasted quite a while um, by being capital efficient and funding through operations. So last summer we closed our Series A. We were on a sort of business plan trajectory that would have had us. I forget now because this year has just been so crazy. But I think we would have been approaching our Series B around now. Um, I think <laughs> I don't remember mm-hmm. to be honest with you, but, but we have but pre-pandemic, we were a series A company, um, you know, high growth trajectory. Um, since the pandemic, um, we actually closed our, uh, a, a very significant up round series B, um, uh, you know, high multiple on our series A valuation, um, and significant amount of new capital. So, um, sorry, I kind of skipped ahead and answered the second part of your question. That's Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, uh, let's talk about how the business has been affected by COVID-19. What's, what's changed? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, everything came to a screeching halt, right? (laughs) Well, that's the interesting thing is that, um, it turns out that a platform that's built to help make life easier for fans to buy and sell and exchange and return tickets was very well suited for the pandemic and this sort of time of uncertainty. Hmm. And so for light, we've almost never been busier. Um, wow. We've been very lucky. Um, and with very minor tweaks and adaptations, we were able to take our platform and really open up a whole nother way to serve our clients. So I'll sort of take a step back and say, when the pandemic hit, we knew intuitively that, we had some solutions we could take to market. But what we decided was basically Ant said to us, let's go to our clients and ask them the thing they're most afraid of and see if we could help them with that. And um, first of all, that was an incredibly emotionally intelligent response. So we didn't go to the market and say, um, we're here to save the day. Um, We tried to put ourselves in a position of service Mm -hmm. and 
the thing that a lot of our clients and frankly, our, the live event industry was afraid of was what felt like the looming onslaught of customer returns and all the cash that was going to go back out the door. Right. Um, and you know, in the live event business, um, a lot of times you're spending, um, you're spending your deferred revenue on your operations. So, um, cash crunch is a very real thing when you start to have to return tickets at scale. And so we adapted the product to try to help give fans choices other than just taking their money back. Um, and that's manifested in things like, um, if a festival, um, postponed or canceled for 2020, we could tell you, you now have a ticket for 2021 if you want right. to keep, you know, so keep your ticket. You're, we're going to honor you next year. Or um, you could exchange your ticket uh, for a different event. Um, or you could have credit in the online store or um, all kinds of just any one of them were simple, but in aggregate, they were an incredibly powerful suite of options. We were able to give fans um, who may not need or want their money back yet, um, give them a way to stay in their position so that the event holder could keep the cash. Because here's the thing. It's so little talked about um, during the pandemic. In a lot of ways, consumer demand never died. We have events where the wait list for 2021 is through the roof. Like we, we probably won't get enough 2021 supply to fulfill all the demand. Part of that is if I knew I wanted to go to Coachella this year, um, before I even knew the lineup, chances are I want to go next year because I know Golden Voice is going to put on an amazing event. And yes, the lineup's important, but I'm going to Coachella, man. Like it's, it's spring break and I'm going to Coachella and I can't wait to go. Part of it is there, and this is, we get this feedback from customers. Buying those tickets or staying on that wait list, it's a vote of hope with your pocketbook. And that's not trivial. People want something to look forward to. They want to be able to look forward to the end of this situation. Yes. And if I say, man, I'm going to Coachella next year, whether it's in April, June, or next September, but I'm going to Coachella, it's something to look forward to. And people need and want that right now. Um, so if you're one of those people who is in that unfortunate situation of you've lost your job or you've taken a really bad hit financially and you need your money back, by all means, we want to make it easy for you to get your money back. But if you don't need your money back um, and you want to let it ride or you want the collectible, the piece of memorabilia, you want to have some fun, um, we can give you that experience too. Um, and that's been incredibly powerful. It's kept uh, refund rates very low. Um, we think it's kept some of our partners in a much more liquid position. Um, and it's given us, frankly, a sense of usefulness in a very difficult time. So that's what we've been up to. <laughs> so interesting. You can't predict what, you know, what, what would have happened if somebody were to say, uh, oh, this pandemic's going to happen. You can't predict like that you could have fulfilled that need in that way. It's, it's super smart thinking on the part of your company. Um, but also just the, the psychology of what it's like to experience this is very hard to, would have been very hard to project in advance. I think that's a strong point. I think if you told us this was coming and we had to plan for it, um, we may have done what a lot of other companies have done. We might have said, all right, let's go into survival mode. Let's cut down mm-hmm. OPEX to as, as slim as possible and let's just ride it out. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you one, one quick anecdote. The last time 
um, we were together as an executive team. The last time I saw my peers on the executive team um, was the week of the first week of March. And we had a two-day offsite, um, basically with a coach. Um, but we, we we initiated this this um, this program uh, for all of us, and it had to do with basically how we get alignment as a team, and how we interact with each other, how we communicate better, and as you might imagine, a lot of that had to do with empathy, and the fact that we ended those two-day sessions, and then went home into this really shaped how light survived because oh, we spoke to each other differently. We spoke to our employees and our clients differently. Um, that was, that was, I think that was the differentiator. Certainly our products, certainly like we like to be clever people and solution oriented, but we were prepared to lead with, um, our hearts and our minds. And I think that made a big difference. It really comes out in how you describe it. It really sounds like the core response was to think about giving options to the customer, the, 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 the person who purchased the ticket and really like making them feel like they have a choice as opposed to a less bad experience, <laughs> which is the yeah. way I think a lot of this stuff gets tackled. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think feeling some sense of agency in an otherwise very powerless situation, um, it's important. Yeah. Hey, in all this conversation about the response to the pandemic, everywhere else in the live music world, it's a conversation about live streaming. We haven't talked about that. Have you guys done anything in that realm? Um, not commercially. Not yet, although we've done a lot internally. <laughs> we've hosted some live streams for our employees and um, actually had a lot of fun doing that. But no, we, we, the conversations we've had a li around live streaming have had more to do um, in scenarios where there's like, um, for lack of a better way to say it, some, um, some uh, uh, created scarcity. So you can imagine a scenario where um, if an artist is going to do a live stream and it's basically open to everybody and there's no capacity limits, they might want to let 50 people into a sound check or into a virtual meet and greet. And we've talked about um, scenarios where we could, you know, we could ticket that stuff or we could work with the platform on that stuff so that um, we could create a market around, um, you know, around the, the, the limited quantity of availability or using our demand aggregation tools there might be a thousand people who want to get into that virtual meet and greet. Let's help understand that demand in advance. And then maybe you'll do five more events with different meet and greets. But so we've got the product application ideas, but we've really been focused on this getting the core live, uh, the core live business back up on its feet um, using our demand aggregation tools in advance of next year. So we have a bunch of campaigns that are up right now. Um, with ambiguous situations. So by that, I mean artist tours that we're taking reservations for, for which it's only cities. There's no dates, no venues, no lineups beyond the headliner. Um, festivals that are doing the same thing. We're, so we don't, we're not dismissive of the live, live streaming space at all, um, but we think it's pretty well covered by other folks. Um, we're really trying to get um, the live you know, the, the physical live space back up and running. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So I like to ask podcast guests, what other music tech companies or trends that they find intriguing? Are, are there any other, not light, other stuff that's, uh, that's things that you're in interested in keeping an eye on? 
Yeah, actually, I, I am interested in the live streaming space more from the point of view of, um, you know, to use the old the old language, like the, the webcasting business. I, I always felt like, um, you know, we were doing webcasts in the late 90s when it was shitty, clunky streaming technology and choppy frame rates and all that stuff. And I, I always felt like it never found webcasting never found its killer app in music. Mm-hmm. Um that it was always a promotional thing. You know, there could be a cool factor, but it was never really scalable or repeatable. And what's exciting to me now is to see what some of the platforms are doing um, around, like, I I think finally live streaming can become its own artistic medium. So in the same way that, you know, um, radio didn't kill recorded music or TV didn't kill movies, I don't think live streaming kills physical live events i just think it Mm -hmm. becomes its own um it's going to have its own tropes or its own sort of customs and and uh formats and i think there will become artists who really figure out how to make live streaming not just a camera on them while they sit there and play like you know the one that everybody talked about early on was that that bts um live stream that you know attracted three quarters of a million people or whatever it was Mm -hmm. um now, not everything's going to be BTS level, but live streaming as a medium, I think is going to be really interesting. And I'm hoping it's here to stay um, and that artists figure out how to use it as a new creative format. So I love that. Yeah. And I think people are being really creative that it's not necessarily the same experience for the performer or for the audience. Um, and there's certain ways in which it can be more interactive in certain ways when it's maybe not more interactive, but lower friction. Um, and then just a wide variety of ways that people are creating and experiencing it. So we've done several episodes with different live streaming platforms um, and, and had some sessions on that at the uh, Music Tectonics Conference uh, earlier in the year. Hey, listen, this has been fun, Lawrence. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I Before you go, though, I would love to ask you a little bit about your own podcast, Spotlight On, uh, kind of a play on the word spotlight, and light again is L-Y-T-E. What's the focus of the podcast, and, and why did you choose to launch it? Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking about that. Um in the old days, when there used to be these things called offices that people congregated in to do work for money, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we used to have this thing called an office. And um, the the genesis of the podcast was that, you know, I, in the course of my professional life, I get to do a lot of cool things, right? Like, let's just be honest about it. I get to go to shows. I get to work with artists. I get to hang out backstage. I get to go to cool business meetings and meet innovative thinkers. But at the end of the day, I don't do the really important work that of light. It's these offices full of, um, you know, our smart developers and program managers and finance people, they they're doing the important work. And so the idea was how do we give them access to the cool stuff? And so I used to do what we called a salon series where, um, we would have artists come into the office or business people, and I would interview them in front of the staff. And, um, we really liked that content and we were recording them and archiving them internally, using them in some social media campaigns. And we realized like, wow, if, what if we could bring these people, um, and their lives to everybody. And so the idea was let's talk to people who have figured out a way to make a life in the creative fields and in entertainment, whether as talent or as business people or as support services, um, and learn a little bit about who they are and how they got to where they, they are today. 
um, and learn a little bit about the passions that drive them. So that's sort of our, our unique take on, on uh, the podcast and what we think we have to offer. It's just an attempt to, to show people the personalities um, and the spirits behind entertainment. Can you give us a few examples of recent episodes that our audience might like to check out? Yeah, I mean, um, I'll, I, yeah, I'll highlight a few. I think our very first episode was a fun one, which was with Ben Lovett from Mumford & Sons. Ben was a great um, example because he's such a multifaceted person. He's, you know, a founding member of Mumford and Sons, but he's also an executive in the live entertainment space. He owns um, he owns something called the Venue Group. Um, so he he manages concert venues and, and builds and develops venues. He's an innovative thinker around live entertainment and business models. Um, I, I, we actually have one launching Monday with another Dimitri, uh, a guy named Dimitri Ehrlich, who... Um, is a songwriter. Um, he wrote a book um, in the mid '90s about the intersection of spirituality and music, where he interviewed Mick Jagger and Michael Franti and a bunch of other people around the role of spirituality um, in music. So, sort of his story about how he got to be—he's both a journalist and a creative person and a business guy. Um, I think that's going to be a great one that will launch next week. We had you on, and uh, <laughs> your story. Uh, you sort of encapsulated the spirit of the podcast really well because you have this interesting, passion-filled life um, that is directly manifested in the work and the business uh, work that you do. Um, you're sort of you're the representative podcast guest. <laughs> wow, thanks. I hope that's good. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. And actually, um, it's very different than this podcast. So folks that are listening to this one should check out that episode because I ta- you asked me questions that stuff I've never been recorded talking about my background, really deep dive into to my, my whole past um, from childhood on through the career. And, and it was so much fun. So I'm glad we got to turn the tables and get you in here. And uh, this has been a blast. I hope we get a chance to do it again sometime, um, maybe in person someday <laughs> if we're allowed oh, to see each that. other and get on planes and, and stuff. But this has been super inspirational and, and great to, to do a deep dive into lighten your career, Lawrence. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate oh, Dimitri, it. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the, the platform and uh, congratulations on, on all you've been doing and uh, keep up the fight. Man. Same to you. Thanks, Lawrence. Take care. All right, bye-bye. And thank you for listening to the Music Tectonics podcast. Of course, hit subscribe on my podcast, on his podcast. Stay engaged. But also, did you know we've got an app? The Music Tectonics app is available in both the Apple iOS app store as well as Google Play. Once you get there, you can introduce yourself and interact with everybody else. It's a community app. It's basically for asking each other questions, meeting people, networking. We post a lot of content there, a lot of news analysis, um, updates about what else is going on in the music tectonics community in fact we have a huge infusion of new members in the app right now because we just finished the annual music tectonics conference and all of those folks are joining the app right now so you should join too and stay tuned because we'll have more episodes coming soon thanks so much you're listening to music tectonics